morning, everyone. We're uh, continuing in our um, Bible overview series this morning. And so if you've heard me preach one of these in the last month, you can probably recite my introduction by heart by now. Uh, but in case you haven't heard one of these before, the, the, what we're doing is that we are taking each book of the Bible and we are going over it in one lesson, in, in just one Sunday morning service. Uh, we're going over the book as a whole. And the reason that we're doing that is because sometimes when you take a step back from your Bible study and you look at what the book as a whole is about, you can learn things that you otherwise wouldn't. I've used this example before. It's kind of like when you're putting together a puzzle, right? You can look at each little individual piece of puzzle and you see a little image on it and there's lots of detail in there. That's like our, our Bible studies. But it's not until you put it all together and step back that you see how it's all connected and you learn things that you didn't before. You see the big picture. So this morning, we're going to be going over the book of Joshua. So if you want to turn over there, um, we'll spend most of our time in the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is probably one of the best books of the Bible, but I'm a little biased there, you know. But let's dive into the book of Joshua here. And to start off, let's just recap where we've come so far, right? So God chose Abraham uh, for his promise. And then through Abraham, his family, to become the people of Israel. Then the people of Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt. And through Moses, God rescues them out of Egypt. He then makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brings them through the wilderness. Israel is then camped outside of the promised land, and Moses calls them to obey God's commands so that they can show all the other nations what God is like. And the book of Joshua, it picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel is ready to enter into the promised land. And so the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements, and you can see them up on the screen right now. First, Joshua leads Israel into the promised land in chapters 1 to 5. And then once they're there, they're met with hostility from the Canaanites, and they engage them in a series of battles in chapters 6 to 12. After their victory, Joshua divides up the promised land for an inheritance among the people in chapters 13 to 22. And then the book concludes with a series of final speeches that Joshua gives to the people in chapters 23 and 24. So we'll dive in and we'll kind of see how this all flows together. So we'll start in chapters 1 to 5. This first section begins with Moses' death and Joshua being appointed as the new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey God's commands, to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Except for Joshua, it goes much, much better than it did for Moses. In fact, some of the Canaanites actually turn and follow the God of Israel. And we see that with, with Rahab. After that, Joshua leads all of Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. 
And just like the sea parted from Moses in Exodus, so here the river Jordan parts, and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all of Israel with them. Now in chapter 5, the story transitions, and it's got these two parts, sort of a part about looking back and a part about looking forward. The people look back at their roots as God's covenant people, and the new generation is circumcised, and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then as they turn and prepare to go forward, Joshua has this encounter with a mysterious warrior. And it turns out that this warrior is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks him, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds in Joshua chapter 5.13, he says, No, rather I have come now as the captain of the army of the Lord. And his response shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side, not whether God is on one side for man or the other side for man. It makes it clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites, but rather that this is God's battle, and Israel is going to play the role of spectator, or sometimes supporters, in God's plan. And that leads to the next section. In chapters 6 to 12, we find these stories about all the conflicts that Israel has with the different Canaanite groups. And this first part retells the story of two battles in detail. And then it's followed by a short series of stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. The first two battles are against Jericho and Ai. And they offer these contrasting portraits between God's faith faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take this completely passive approach. And so they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city. And they play music as they walk around for six days. And just like Rahab turns to the God of Israel, you think that maybe the people of Jericho will do the same, but they don't. And so on the seventh day, the priests, they blow the trumpets and the walls come crashing down for Israel's victory. And the point of the story is that it is God who is the one who will deliver his people. Israel simply needs to trust in his plan and wait. Now the next story, the story about Ai, makes the opposite point. So here there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals uh, some of the plunder from Jericho, and he hides it, and then he lies about it. And it's a pretty bad decision after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with this city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. It's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so these two stories, they're placed together right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the promised land, they must be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group who do just as Rahab did, and they turn to follow the God of Israel, and they make peace with Israel. And this is in contrast to all these other Canaanite kings 
who start to form alliances and coalitions, and they want to destroy Israel. And so Israel engages them in battle, and they win by a landslide. And so this entire section in chapter 12 uh, just concludes with this summary list of all the battles that Israel uh, won by Moses and then by Joshua. But I want to stop here for a second, because if you are going in depth and you're reading in Joshua and you're reading about all of these battles that Israel engaged in, there's a chance that this violence bothers you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you think, didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? So why then is God declaring war here? And that's a good question. The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. The culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to uh, sex in Leviticus. You can see that in chapter 18. And also the fact that they practiced child sacrifice, which you see in Deuteronomy chapter 12. God didn't want these influences or these practices to influence his people. We know that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump of dough, right? It's the same it's the same principle here. And so the Canaanites, they had to go. Now you might ask, well, if God is completely destroying one people, isn't that a genocide? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verses 1 to 2, it reads, And he drives away the many nations before you. And when the Lord your God turns them over to you, and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. God was actually going to drive out some of these nations, but there were times when he was going to turn over a portion of them, an army or a city, to Israel. And in those times, Israel was to utterly defeat them. Of course, they didn't always do that. They didn't always follow what God told them to do. And there were times, though, that Israel was obedient and an entire city was destroyed. No survivors, no livestock, sometimes not even a stone upon another stone. And they were utterly destroyed. But there were times when they weren't utterly destroyed. For example, if you look in Joshua chapter 10, in verse 37, it says that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir. But then later, just a couple chapters later, in chapter 15, verse 15, we see these same two towns, Hebron and Debir, and it says that they're populated by Canaanites. So then, what did it mean when it said that they left no survivors? Well, you see, there are times when the Bible uses hyperbole, just like we do. For example, if I say that, you know, I didn't eat breakfast, and so I'm starving. I'm not actually starving. I might be a little bit hungry, but I'm not starving. Or if I said, I haven't eaten in a million years. I'm just being, um, I'm exaggerating it for the point of making a point, right? I'm not trying to tell you a lie. I'm not actually trying to convince you that I haven't eaten in a million years. I'm just trying to express how hungry I am. In the same way, there are times in the Old Testament where the Bible uses hyperbolic language to express just how severe a Canaanite defeat was. And so the Bible does both. So as you go through the Old Testament, you need to be careful to understand exactly which the Bible is using. Because there are times when a city was utterly defeated and there were no survivors. And there are other times when it's just using that to express how complete Israel's victory was. 
Now, not only that, but we see that there were stories about Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, right? I've used the Gibeonites and Rahab as examples of that. And so the Canaanites did have the opportunity to turn to God. So the answer to did God initiate a genocide is no. There were opportunities for those who were righteous to turn to God. There were opportunities for them to repent. But the extreme moral corruption that they had had to be severely dealt with, just like we saw with Achan in the Israelites. The last thing I want you to think about is the fact that these stories, they mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles, they were limited to a handful of people groups that were living in Canaan. With all the other nations, Israel was commanded to pursue peace. If you read in Deuteronomy chapter 20, it outlines exactly how Israel was supposed to pursue peace with these other nations. So the purpose of these battles is never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, it's to show how God is bringing justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to the book's design. So after years of battles, we see an aging Joshua, and he's dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section in chapters 13 to 22, most of this section is like trying to read a map with no pictures. For us, it's, it's very boring. But for the Israelites, it was super important because it showed the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. It shows how all of these details that God set up, they're coming all to pass, and that sets up for the final section of the book. The final section of the book in chapters 23 to 24, it's two speeches that Joshua gives to the, pe to the people. And they're actually very similar to the last two speeches that Moses gave in Deuteronomy. Joshua reminds Israel of God's generosity and how he brought them into the land, and how he rescued them from the Canaanites. And so then he calls them to turn away from the Canaanite gods and to be faithful to the covenant that they made. If they do, it'll lead to life and blessings. And if they don't, they'll call down on themselves the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked off the land into exile. And so Joshua leaves them with a choice. And we, let, we are left at the end of the book of Joshua wondering what Israel will do. That's the big question that leads into the next book, the book of Judges. But what about us today? That's how the book of Joshua was important to the people of Israel. But what about us today, those of us who are under the new law, under the New Testament? What does the book of Joshua have to convey to us? Well, I think it's summed up very well in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. Joshua 24 and verse 15, this is the declaration that Joshua made to the people. He says, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which are beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in the land who you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the same question that's posed to us today. Who will we follow? We have the Bible which carries the history of God since the beginning of time and how he's interacted with people and what he's done for us. 
We have the teachings of Jesus contained in the New Testament as well. We have all those things to show us God's character and how he's fulfilled his promises. And so we're given the same choice. Will we trust God and will we obey him? Or will we run after the gods of our own land? Wealth, power, pleasure. Our land has gods just the same as the Amorites did. We don't call them by a specific thing, but they're encompassed within the same ideas. We have the opportunity to make the same choice that the Israelites did today. We're about to have this time of invitation. We're, we're about to sing a song, and we offer the chance for those who want to obey God to come forward and let it be known that where you can enter into the waters of baptism and repent from, from your old life and turn to God and be renewed as a new creature. We also have a time of opportunity for those who may have fallen away and they need to renew their dedication to God. Or maybe it's just prayers of encouragement. We all go through tough times and sometimes we just need the prayers and the support of the congregation. So wherever you find yourself today, if you need any of those things, let it be known while together, while we stand, and while we sing. Mark the gentle voice of Jesus, Jesus from the tenderly.